Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur, author, artist, mother, and certified recovery coach. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, entrepreneur, girl dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, a premier substance abuse and mental health treatment program. With the collective experience of 21 years working in the mental health field, we are excited to bring to you a safe and fun place to talk all things mental health. We will be interviewing experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals in the entertainment industry to better educate, inform, and inspire our community to have positive mental wealth. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to the Got Mental Health podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove, and my usual co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, is not here today, so I am solo in the studio. And I am here in the studio with one of my favorite humans, I don't know if he knows that, uh, of my entire life, uh, Bruce Gregory, PhD, who has been a licensed marriage family therapist for 45 years, working with individuals, family, or organizations. He was the director of the master program at Reacon College for 25 years. He has worked in the addiction recovery field for 25 years and has trained the staffs for Promises and Cliffside Treatment Centers. His specialties in the addiction recovery sector include working with high-level executives, struggling with young adults and families needing systemic healing involving learning healthy communication skills, accountability, and the repair of trust. Bruce has been a regular workshop presenter for the Ericksonian Foundation for 25 years, presenting workshops on the integration of Ericksonian mind-body hypnotherapy with other therapeutic disciplines, Tai Chi, Tibetan Tibetan Buddhist meditation, and quantum physics in the treatment of resistance, trauma, and addiction. He has been a corporate behavioral specialist for 40 years, working with companies that include American Express, Xerox, and Travelers Insurance. He has published a series of articles in integrating Ericksonian mind-body hypnotherapy with classical music, composition theory, Tai Chi, Tibetan Buddhist meditation, mathematics, and quantum physics. He has also been a workshop leader at Echelon Institute presenting workshops in the art of leadership, the transformative power of grief, and the activation of the core self. Welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast, Bruce. Thanks, Rachel, for having me. What an incredible biography. I mean, there's so many points that I want to delve into. Uh, But the first thing I want to delve into is how you got to be who you are today. What led you to want to get involved in the world of psychology? I went to a, a lecture by Ramdas when I was a student at USC, and he introduced me to the idea that there were uh, different levels of consciousness available to human beings. So I set out on a journey to learn about it. How old were you? 19. Oh my, wait, did you actually meet Ram Dass? No, I never met Ram Dass, but I met one of his partners 20 years later. So what about the experience motivated you, intrigued you to want to pursue a career in psychology? Um, that experience actually didn't. What motivated me to exp- to go into psychology was that uh, two weeks before my 13th birthday, my sister died of leukemia, mm. and she was 11. So that was pretty challenging on many, many levels. And it inspired me to learn about how the mind worked. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I read a lot of books, and one of them was a book by an English psychiatrist from Scotland named R.D. Lang called The Politics of Experience. The Politics of Experience. It was written in 1967. And he was advocating for the idea that if people had the courage to go through their pain, they could come out on the other side. And he was specifically targeting his treatment towards schizophrenics. And he took the position that the establishment treatment of schizophrenics was dehumanizing. So he set up a community in London, in a place where Mahatma Gandhi used to live, where psychiatrists and students like me and people who had been in mental hospital their entire life could live together 
with no hierarchy. It was an experiment. It was a social experiment to see what would happen if you treated people who had been called crazy like human beings, and they might respond. How did they respond? They respond with a lot of terror mm. because they lived in a world of terror, but they responded to kindness, and it propelled me to do further reading. You love to read. I read, yeah. How, how often do you read today? Uh, I read almost every day. What do you like to read? I read books on mathematics and physics and Tai Chi. Okay, so let's delve into that for a split second. It's probably going to be more than a split second because I don't think I've actually ever seen these words together uh, where you're using quantum physics to – hold on, let me just get this where, where it is really quick – Explain to me what you're doing with quantum physics and how you're using quantum physics to establish change. Is that what I read? Yes. Okay. Go into that because what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean is that there was a psychiatrist from Wisconsin who transported himself to Phoenix, Arizona in the mid-20th century, and his name was Milton Erickson. And he has been recognized probably as the most effective psychotherapist of the 20th century because he could treat cases nobody else could treat. And he identified a way of speaking with the unconscious in a person to activate unconscious healing processes. And what he did in 1964, which very few people in the Erickson world even know about today, he wrote a 11-page protocol on how to deal with resistance. And he identified the steps for dealing with resistance. And it turns out that these steps use the same principles that are used in Tai Chi all the time. And the main variables that he identified happen to be the primary variables from quantum physics. And there's a complete overlap between the three. And most therapists don't know anything about this. I, I've never heard of anyone other than you that knows anything about this. So what? how did you go from not knowing anything about this to all of a sudden investigating quantum physics in relationship to resistance? When I went for my doctorate in 1973, when I was 23 years old. Wait, 23? 23. But you said you first got motivated at 19. Yeah. By 23, I was in a doctorate program. Wow. And I got my doctorate by the time I was 25. But the first day at the doctorate program, I walked into a room of 75 people, and I caught the eye of a guy across the room. We became best friends. It turns out that his dad had, was the private attorney to Lyndon Johnson, the president. And... He had been working in his own therapy with a private consultant who provided counsel for leaders in the government, and he introduced me to her. And I worked with this woman for many years, and at one point, we did a series of television shows in Houston, Texas, for the Christian community, showing the relationship between the New Testament and psychology. Wow, epic. But it turns out, that this woman was going to hypnotherapy to improve her bowling. And the person she was going to hypnotherapy with was the man Erickson chose to write his books with. And she suggested that I go to a workshop and meet this man whose name was Dr. Ernest Rossi, who actually wrote 40 books and published 175 articles in his lifetime. And that's a fairly large number. That's large. And what happened after Milton Erickson died is Ernie Rossi wanted to show how Erickson's work was related to the sciences, that psychology was, wasn't just hocus-pocus and feel-good kind of things, that it had a scientific basis. So he wrote a series of books that showed the relationship between psychology, biology, physics, and mathematics. 
And along the way, he suggested I do some reading. And that's how I got involved in it. So in the practical approach of using mathematics to help someone psychologically, what are the steps around that? Well, it turns out that mathematics is considered the foundation of all the sciences. Okay? Most people don't know that. And most people don't know who was considered the father of modern science. Do you? No. The father of mo modern science is considered to be Galileo. Wow. And Galileo wrote this very weird book in 1632 where he stood up to a, a pretty narcissistic organization at the time that was going along with the views of Aristotle who had suggested that the sun went around the earth and the earth was the center of the universe. And Galileo came out and said, no, no, actually the earth goes around the sun. And this organization found this idea offensive, which was actually a fact, but they found it offensive. And Galileo was put in prison for it, for speaking the truth. And what he meant that mathematics was the foundation of the sciences is that mathematics is really poorly understood, like a psychological concept like narcissism, that people think mathematics is about numbers. It's really a language of relationships, and it teaches problem-solving skills, and it's really a way to teach people how to think, not just do multiplication tables. And Mathematics is really the basis for what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy. No way. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah. I would have never thought that. Yeah. Right. Most people are intimidated by mathematics the same way they're intimidated by this whole concept of narcissism. Yeah. I feel like I have a toxic relationship with math. Yeah. I'm a very avoidant of math. Yeah. yeah. I don't treat math very well. Yeah. So... I'm going to put that on pause for a second because I want to pivot into a word you just brought up. Okay. Narcissism. Yes. This word is, first of all, I, I feel like I don't go a single day without someone saying to me, oh my God, he's such a narcissist. Oh my God, she's such a narcissist. This, this person is such a narcissist. Um, so I really want to break this down because I feel like there are a lot of narcissists in the world. I think narcissism is everywhere in our culture. And also I think people just use it as a way to describe something and they have no idea what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with what is narcissism? Um, well, first it's misunderstood and misused the word because when the word is used, like you just used it, it's used in a pejorative sense and it's used by someone who feels victimized by it. When in reality, most people don't know, the public doesn't know, that narcissism or the narcissistic defense complex, which is much more accurate, is just one of four selves that every human being has. And there are two unhealthy selves, and two healthy selves that every human being has. And the unhealthy selves are the narcissistic defense complex and what's called the false self defense complex. And the healthy selves are the, the real self and the core self. And when we talk about narcissism in our culture, often the word Trump is thrown around or people talk about it in terms of relationships where they're victimized by a narcissist, or we think of it in terms of addiction where there's a narcissist and a codependent. And what we leave out of that whole discussion is the word intention, because the key to understanding narcissism is to understand intention. I've never heard that. So. Can you go into that? Yes. 
when someone is in a narcissistic defense complex, not a narcissistic personality disorder, everyone has a narcissistic defense complex. It's part of the defense system that's erected in childhood, part nature, part nurture. When someone is in that complex, the intention is to intimidate, dominate, manipulate, exploit, pressure. It's an intention, which is the opposite of the intentions of quantum physics, which are to connect, to collaborate, to facilitate teamwork. The narcissistic defense wants to be above and separate and special. The problem that most people don't understand is that narcissism is driven by a force called grandiosity. Mm. Okay. It's a part of the self that everybody has which says, I'm special, the rules don't apply to me, and I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with no consequences. In a relationship, it comes at somebody with a force because it's certain that it's right, it's certain that it knows everything, and if you don't agree with it, you're in trouble. The problem here is the other side of the relationship, not the narcissism itself. The, the problem is the person on the receiving end thinks they can get, get away with being a victim. The person on the receiving end thinks they can get away with being a victim. Right, and not take responsibility for their choices so they can get away with scapegoating. When you first started talking about those other people saying, oh, he's a narcissist, they're a narcissist, they're scapegoating the other person. So it's an attempt to avoid their own pain. Not only pain, but it's they're avoiding their responsibility for their choices. Why would someone avoid responsibility for their choices? Because they are clinging to the idea that they can get away with being a victim. And how does being, how does leading with a victim mentality serve someone? It gives them a secondary gain mm. where they don't have to take responsibility. It's basically driven by an avoidance of responsibility. And if someone were to take responsibility, wouldn't that help them? It would liberate them. So why avoid it? Because there's an internal part that's narcissistic that thinks that everything's their fault. Mm. And they don't know the difference between what they're responsible for and what they're not. And our culture doesn't really teach that clearly. Really? I, I feel like I learned it in first grade. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but that's really interesting. I, 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 as someone who truly believes that in order to heal, I have to face myself. Mm -hmm. I have to face my pain. I have to face my grief. I have to face the parts of myself that have shame attached to it. And you don't hear a lot of therapists or people in the mental health industry talking about facing their own narcissistic parts. Right. Again, because I think the word narcissism comes with such a negative connotation, especially like you said, everyone just throws that word around and like... I, I honestly feel like I hear the word narcissist as much as I hear the word the, right? right. <laughs> so if we go back to when we are in developmental stages in our childhood and we're, um, and, and, and children are developing, what is the natural stage of development regarding Narcissism, because isn't it doesn't a isn't a child naturally doesn't a child naturally go through a narcissistic stage? Absolutely. What age is that? Zero to eighteen months. No way. Yes way. Wait a minute. I <laughs> thought it was much later. No, that's when it is. It's zero to eighteen months. Yeah. That's surprising to me. I right. thought it was much later. I thought it was between the ages of like four and seven. No. Between four and seven, a child is learning to feel pride in their body and in their capacities to use their body. So is four and seven the age of autonomy where they're learning the, they're separate? The, no, they're learning they're separate between 18 months 
and 36 months. Right, that's the no stage. That's the no stage, the abandonment stage, abandonment anxiety stage, okay? Wow, so tell me why zero to 18, 18 months is the stage of, I mean, am I saying that correctly? Is that the stage of narcissism? Is that the stage? It's called, technically, infantile omnipotence. Wow. Omnipotence is a synonym for feeling narcissistic. But a child at zero to 18 months, they don't even know that they're separate from mom. That's the point. They think they and mom are one, and they have power over mom and power over the whole world. Because they are mom. They're one with mom. And that's so special. So that is why they feel that way, zero to 18 months. I'm just registering this. This is yeah. just, I'm digesting this information. It's quite shocking. I feel like I've been telling people the wrong information for a long time, so I apologize. But uh, can, I, can I take it to the next level just for a second? Are we going deeper? <laughs> no, not deeper, just a piece of information. Okay. There was a book written 40 or 50 years ago. It's called Oneness and Separateness. Anybody can get it on the internet. It details the first 36 months of a child's life and what the psycho psychological needs are and how they evolve. Oneness and separateness. Oneness and separateness. Everyone get that book now. <laughs> That's an interesting book. Yeah, it's a great book. I wish I knew about that book. So, okay, zero to 18 months. Let's focus on this time. Because I had a therapist on here one time, and she was talking about how parents don't naturally help their kids develop in healthy ways anymore. That's true. So... How does one help their child develop through the zero to 18 month stage? During that stage, you're as present for the child as possible. So the child feels like you're there and they get a lot of affection. So if a, ch if a parent fucks up during this stage, which is easy to do because children are very overwhelming and exhausting and wonderful creatures all at the same time, but if they don't do everything perfectly, right? I think the fear that I've had, that a lot of parents have had, is if they don't do it right, they, they don't want to raise a narcissist, right? Right. So how do you make sure that you don't raise a narcissist? Well, one of the things that would help a lot of parents is if they were provided information that it's a very difficult job and they're not supposed to know everything and they're not supposed to feel shame or inadequate if they don't know something, or if they're anxious, or if they're afraid they're not doing it right, they're supposed to not think so rigidly, which is narcissistic, that they have to know everything. So they can recognize with a little bit of humility, oh, perhaps I need some support with this. And sometimes the support is information that deals with expectations, and sometimes the support is somebody appreciating how much reassurance they might need. Because most people think of reassurance and the need for reassurance as a flat line. And they don't think of it like stitches. Right, there's almost this feeling of shame attached to reassurance. Right, yeah. And that comes from a narcissistic rigidity that the need for reassurance is weak. Wow, that's important. Because if I need reassurance, I'm not all-powerful. And the narcissism needs to feel all-powerful. Anything that's threatening to not feeling all-powerful creates shame for the narcissistic self. Okay, so when a child is between the ages of 0 and 18 months, they're not really talking yet. Nope. So... How could this stage determine whether someone becomes a malignant narcissist? These are the words I've heard. Malignant narcissist, oh, oh, malignant narcissist, overt narcissist, and covert narcissist. Right. So how do those early stages impact that? <laughs> well, there's a difference between those early stages are really three different stages. Oh, go into that. Okay. 
And the zero to 18 months is not really where the problem is. Okay. The problem comes in the second stage, the stage of separation, where the child is experiencing so much anxiety, which is called separation anxiety, because they're starting to recognize their consciousness is expanding, that they and the mother are not one. So they're angry about it. They're angry about it. They're angry about it. They were angry even before that, okay, which is another issue. But they're angry about it, but mostly they're scared that mommy's not going to come back because they recognize they're still dependent and that if mommy doesn't come back, they're going to die and they want to live. So is, is it almost an anger that they need mommy to survive? Uh, part of the anger is that they need mommy. Part of the anger is that mommy has the breast. They have envy about that. Now, that was written about in 1932. That's almost 100 years ago. All that was worked out by a, a female psychologist named Melanie Klein. Oh. She worked that all out, that the child is angry at the ma mother no matter what the mother does. Is that why, as a mother, I feel like I get a lot of the anger? Yes, of course. But it's the later stages where the narcissism gets solidified. If the mom is not getting enough support to reassure the child, to help them learn about disappointment and frustration and limits, because that's where it gets solidified if there are no limits. That's really interesting. So you're saying the narcissism gets solidified if the child does not learn healthy limits and boundaries. Right. So that's of the utmost importance. That's the central feature. And how do you teach a child healthy boundaries and limits? I know that's a big question because there's so many answers. Or maybe not. <laughs> You're looking at me like it's no. one thing. <laughs> it's a lot of things. Yeah. For sure. Because it's limits about when we can spend time together. It's limits about when you need to brush your teeth. It's limits about how long you can play on a video game. It's limits about when you need to have your homework done by before you can do something else so that the child learns that, oh, there's limits and I have choices to make. So the child learns about limits, which is just learning about reality. Sorry. Because a narcissist position is I can do what I want whenever I want and there's no consequence. Wow. Period. It's like Trump in a way. Wow, so a narcissist believes they can do what they want when they want it. Yeah. Does a narcissist... When somebody's in a narcissistic that's state... That's a good way to approach it, because I do not... I am so tired of... I feel like when I say, oh, this person's a narcissist, I'm saying that's all they are. Right. And I'm tired of that, because I don't believe that people are just one thing. I think we have many different parts. Right, but it's more important to understand it. I mean, when you said 15 minutes ago, psychology, they don't talk about dealing with the narcissism. Well, we've kind of gotten away from what was introduced in 1916, over 100 years ago, by a Swiss psychiatrist who rebelled against Freud. Freud said the unconscious really had negative parts. And this guy named Jung came along and he said, no, 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 the unconscious has a lot of healing capacities, but if you really wanna heal, you need to deal with the dark side. You need to deal with the unhealthy part. Jung didn't use that word, he called it the shadow. The shadow, yeah. Right. Now, in certain parts of psychology, they appreciate dealing with the unhealthy part. Okay. It's, very well appreciated in like Kleinian object relations. But in cognitive therapy, they're just gonna get about as far as calling it a cognitive distortion, rather than something that's really unhealthy that you need to address. So we're gonna rearrange how we use the word narcissist. So let's say someone comes in here and I, if the old Rachel were speaking, she would say, 
oh, this person's such a narcissist, right? So maybe as a society, we can start languaging this differently. This person has a narcissistic defense, correct? Yes, or they're operating from a narcissistic position when they're in the room with another human being or when they're with themselves. And it's unconscious, correct? Uh, generally, it's unconscious, yeah. So why would someone unconsciously lead with a narcissistic defense? Because their default position is coming from either fear or pressure or grandiosity. Their default position is an intent to co-create, to collaborate. It has to do with what their starting position is. And you understand that in terms of martial arts. The starting position is critical. If it's not in alignment and in harmony, you're in trouble. And what's out of alignment with a narcissistic position is the intent. What do you mean by that? The intent is not to collaborate or create a win-win. The intent is to dominate or, in some people's case, bully or intimidate or control the intent. So, and it's driven. Why would somebody do that? They, if I can take a leap and talk about it in terms of like science and biology, narcissism can be understood as like being a kind of psychological virus. Mm. You know, like the Egyptian virus, denial. Because narcissism is driven by denial, that I'm out of control, that I'm not in harmony, that I don't need support, that I don't have a problem. Denial's driving all of it. That, that's why somebody would do it, because they're in denial. And when someone goes into a treatment program in the 12-step world, the first part of the treatment is to break down their denial so they can get humble and stand up and say, I'm this, I have a problem, and I need help. That's called containing or deconstructing the denial. Now, many logical tools have been worked out for dealing with the denial. Like, for example, what's your strategy? How's it working? Where did you come up with it? Who told you it was a good idea? Because the idea in those questions is to create doubt. Because the narcissistic person is certain that they're right. And they're certain that they know it, everything. And if you can create doubt, they're going to stop being so grandiose. Wow. So if you stop creating doubt, they will stop being so grandiose. If you create doubt in them. If you create doubt in them. So how... How would you create doubt in someone with a narcissistic defense? Great. The standard example is for a therapist is a couple comes in, and this is 70, 80% of the time, not all the time, and the therapist turns to the man and says, why are you here? And the guy says, because she told me to. She asked me to come. Well, do you do everything that she asks? Clearly, the answer is no. Okay. Okay. Um, well, do you think there's a problem? No, I don't think there's a problem. Okay. Well, well, what was your strategy to convince her of that? Because it didn't work. That's an example of creating doubt. And what happens if they don't know? The, the whole idea is get to get them to experience, I don't know. But then doesn't anger usually pop up? Yes. And doesn't the anger get projected onto the therapist? Or yes, the, absolutely. And you want that to come out. You want it to come out because you want to introduce, do you know the difference between healthy and unhealthy communication? That's really good. <laughs> it's a simple question. But now the person's either going to say yes or no or I don't know or they're just going to give a response in their body language. Do you have empathy for people with narcissist, narcissistic defenses? Well, I think the more appropriate term would be compassion. Compassion. You know, like compassion for Trump. Right. Okay. I mean, Trump's the kind of person who's really suffering inside. So are people with narcissistic defenses able to change? Sure. But they have to be willing to change. Sure. They have to be willing to change. But 
You find that out by asking them questions. What kind of questions? Because I'm sure some husbands or wives or uh, children are coming into this interview thinking, well, I have, in their minds, they're saying, I have a narcissistic father. I have a narcissistic wife. I have a narcissistic husband, right? But God, I love them so much. Is there any way that this could change? Is there any hope? There's always hope. Probably about 10% of people with the narcissistic dynamic really operating strong are basically going to say, no, it's my way or else. And they don't change. 90%? No, 10%. 10% are going to take the position, it's my way or the highway, take it or leave it. Oh. But most are open to change if you set boundaries. So are boundaries the tools to create change in relationships, especially when dealing with someone with a narcissistic defense? It's the primary variable. Tell me why. Because the narcissistic defense thinks that it's so powerful and so special and so smart that it can do anything it wants without a consequence. And the boundary is the consequence. The boundary is the consequence. And that's interesting because I feel like when I've developed my relationship to boundaries, I've had this preconditioned idea about boundaries that it means punishment. Right. Rigid thinking. Rigid thinking. Right. Now, all martial arts is based on setting boundaries with the least amount of force because that's the most empowering thing anybody can do. That's the Lawrence Fishburne move in The Matrix or Bruce Lee, bring it on because the whole thing in martial arts is to be ready or in a relationship to be ready so that when somebody comes at you with a strike or a force or a bad energy or a bad intent, that you can be ready to intercept it. And the interception is a boundary. I love that so much. That should be a bumper sticker on a car because I feel like we live in a society where people, I feel like 90% of people don't have boundaries. I'm one of them. I am only just learning in the last few years what a boundary really is and how it helps me as a, as a human being. Would you say that boundaries keep people safe emotionally and physically? Yeah, it's the key. That's what you do in martial arts all the time. You're, you're defending. You're, no. You're, oh. you're setting a boundary to communicate something. You can't hit me. I can take care of myself. That is so beautiful. Can you say that again? It sends a message to the person's unconscious you can't hit me. Bruce Lee was the greatest at this because he wouldn't even have to intercept. He would just get out of the way. He wouldn't even have to go like this. But the message is, you can't hit me. The Chinese understand these principles in great detail. You can't hit me. So that's physical, right? That someone could go, okay, well, obviously I'm not going to let this person hit me. What would someone with a narcissistic defense be hitting someone with? I don't mean physical. No, you're talking about a psychological communication, which would be called some kind of verbal assault. Yes. Right. They would be hitting somebody with an opinion that behind it is a lot of pressure and a lot of certainty. And the response, which has been identified by the Chinese and by Milton Erickson, is the first response in psychology is to validate. In Chinese, it's called Pong, P-E-N-G. And instead of going like this, sending the message, don't do this to me, the first thing is, thank you for letting me know where you're at. Thank you for being honest, okay? Message. I'm not intimidated by that. And what comes next, level of empowerment, in Chinese martial arts, it's called a redirect. And in psychology, it's just redirecting by asking somebody a question. So questioning people as a way of redirecting them. Yes, and the most important thing to question somebody about in terms of integrity and quantum physics and music is to question what their intent is. I honestly, since I've met you, to this day, 
I say to people, what is your intention with that? (laughs) (laughs) And it's really true because I feel like what happens is it stops them in their track and they have to actually think about why did I say that? Right. What was I trying to do with that? What is it that I'm intending to create here so that it's thought of in terms of creating something? It's an interaction. It's an experience. So the person needs to take responsibility for what they intend to create. That's brilliant, Bruce. So asking the question, what do you in what is was your intention with that is helping someone take responsibility for what they want to create. Yes, it's empowering them. They might feel uncomfortable because they don't know their intention or their intention might not be positive. Because many times when people are sharing Unconsciously, their intention is to manipulate. When they're sharing an opinion? No. Maybe when they're sharing an opinion, but when they're just sharing, they want to get a reaction out of the other person. Mm. Okay. Somebody might want to share, and then they would be humble about what they needed. Because it keeps reinforcing and nurturing what the intention is between two people. Do we want to be sensitive? Is the intention to be sensitive? Is the intention to force an agreement? Is the intention to solve a problem or to brainstorm? Or to have fun and play? What's the intention? Just letting that digest. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful because I... I feel like then then it becomes a process of creation. Co-creation. Co-creation. Yeah, co-creation. Rather than someone trying to manipulate somebody into a box. Very interesting. So in regard to the narcissistic defense, what is the fear that is driving the narcissistic defense? The fear that I'm not all powerful and that makes me inadequate and feeling ashamed. Wow, so it's very different than often the character that they're portraying. Right, it's the opposite. The presentation is confidence and certainty. What's in the background is fear. And how would you help someone with their fear around inadequacy? You would ask them where they learned it and find out some information about when they learned it and what are their criteria for inadequacy. Because from a narcissistic perspective, inadequacy is not being perfect. So they want to be perfect. Need to be perfect. They need to be perfect. And going back to childhood and how they were parented, what are some of the ways that parents contributed to building this complex. Not being sensitive and responsive to developmental needs around frustration and disappointment. Perfect, so if a parent is listening to this today and they're like, oh my God, I really wanna make sure that I don't create this in my child, how can they start responding to their kids to help them build frustration tolerance and to help them build a positive relationship to disappointment? Mm-hmm. By deciding, making some decisions about what life skills they want to teach their kids. And practically, what would that look like? So I'm in a grocery store. I go in there and I say, we're buying lettuce because I want salad tonight. Mm -hmm. And my kid goes, no, but I want a chocolate chip cookie and starts having a meltdown in the store. Right. How should a parent respond to that? Well, we need to take a step back because that would be coping with something in the moment rather than having preemptively dealt with it on the front end. Do you know what we're trying to learn in the next experience? Do you know what the rules are? Do you know what you can do and what you can't do? That would be introducing the child to the landscape that they're about to go into and uh, communicating with them like they're part of the team, that they're not just being brought along to go along. You know what? We have rules at home. Do you know that there are rules 
in cars? Do you know that there are rules in parking lots? Do you know that there are rules in stores? Do you know what's in a store? Do you know that you can't get everything that you want? Okay. Can we talk about what we're going to get there? That's called preparation. That's preparing the child with a mindset. I just got so happy. That would solve so many problems yeah. for parents because I, I truly feel such empathy for children because they're being thrown into these environments and parents often shame the child for just having a natural human child response. Yeah. Yeah. There's no preparation on the front end. Wow. Okay, let me ask you a question about this because I, I have this theory. I have this theory that, and I, I say this with love, baby boomer generation, but I have this feel, I have this theory that a lot of people who are in the baby boomer generation have narcissistic defenses. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think everybody has narcissistic but defenses. You, but I just feel like there's this way of parenting that created a large portion of society to lead with the narcissistic defense. Well, you can have that feeling. Okay. And then it's important to go back in history. Yes. How parents parented their children from the 1700s up to now. What would be the difference? There's more consciousness about children's developmental needs. Mm. So I have compassion. Compassion. I do. Be, I have a ton. Yeah. Compassion would be good. <laughs> That'd be a great start. I actually do. I have a tremendous amount of compassion and I feel very grateful for where we are now with neuroscience and, and what we now know. I, I guess my frustration comes from meeting a lot of, I'm really trying to change my language as I'm talking to you. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> meeting and knowing a lot of adults or even teenagers now. Yeah because of social media, right. because of TikTok, right. that lead with the narcissistic defense. They do. Yeah. They do. And they're trying to get their needs met. They are. So that's good. a good thing to know for the audience, right? right. They're yeah. not assholes. I mean, sometimes they can have asshole behavior, but they're scared little children inside. Right. But Rachel, the key point here is what we went over about 30 minutes ago. Which one? It's the person on the receiving end if they're taking a victim position with the person they're calling narcissistic. But a lot of people would say, well, he hit me, he beat me, she hit me, she beat me. They would say, I am a victim to that. Right. Now, there we need to make a distinction between the event itself and what the person did afterwards. That's interesting. Okay. Because some things actually do happen to people. And then they have choices. And do they take responsibility for them or not? <laughs> I'm just laughing because it's, it's so deeply profound. And I feel like I want to empower people to take responsibility for their choices if they are in a dynamic where there is a codependent or a narcissistic defended human. Right, and that's pretty standard. That's in a lot of relationships, but the person who's claiming to be victimized, you know, and that there's a perpetrator who did something to them, the issue to empower them, they, they certainly can be validated. People are verbally abusive. Some people are physically abusive. Some people actually do get sexually assaulted. And then, what's your strategy now? How do you plan to take care of yourself? Yes, that's what happened. And what's your strategy going forward? What are you gonna do in the relationship and how are you gonna take care of yourself? Yes, that happened, now what? Now what? Well, was it wrong? Of course it was wrong, now what? Was it abusive? Yeah, it was, now what? There's a lot of people in different parts of the world. Their houses are getting blown up. They're losing limbs. They can't eat. Now what? 
were you prepared? Do you walk into the room prepared? Do you know what's okay with you and what's not? Do you honor your own boundaries? Do you even know what they are? Because most people don't. Most people have never even thought about it. Why would this not be taught in school? That's a good question. Um, it's probably the time's not right yet. I would have the director of education on here and ask them. That's a great next step. Or the now what? The, yeah, the person in, in Washington who's head of the Department of Education, ask them. Why don't we teach kids about empowerment? So when you're teaching kids about empowerment and you're teaching couples, let's just go with couples. Or teenagers. Or teenagers. What is the first step to empowerment? Do you know what your rights are? Mm. Do you know that it's okay? It's not okay for people to yell at you. Do you know that? What if they say, well, my mom yells at me. My dad yells at me. Okay. Thanks for telling me. Do you know that it's not okay? Because they were trying to just manipulate me by not answering the question, which most people do, which is a narcissistic thing. I can get away with not answering questions because I'm so smart. That's a narcissistic defense. And we all have it. Most people have it. Yeah. So maybe that's a good way to start healing as a society. We all have a bit of narcissistic tendencies. Sure. Okay. So now what? <laughs> now what? Are we going to be a victim of it or not? Jung said, deal with the shadow. You'll come out the other side. That's what Lang said. How would you start dealing with the shadow? You would start interacting with it. You'd dialogue with it. Like inner child work? Like inner child work. What yeah. would be a... Like if someone... Ha doesn't have a therapist, how could they start dialoguing with their inner child? They would write it a letter and they would lie to it and say, thank you so much for kidnapping me. Thank you for interfering with my life. Thank you for coming in uninvited and taking over my conversations and my participation in life. I really appreciate So they could experience what it was like to lie. And then it would help them as a bridge to say, I don't like you kidnapping me. I didn't invite you here. Now it's time for you to be in your room. So they could start to make a separation between them and the, the inner child. Most people don't even know that they need to do that. How would you define the inner child? Something that's young, something that's scared, something that's in a lot of pain. And is the inner child dictating a lot of our choices unconsciously as adults if it's not been integrated? It's not dictating. It's kidnapping. Kidnapping. It takes over. Wow, that's an interesting way of saying it. You talked about biology. Yeah. It's stored in a file. The file gets opened. It comes to the surface, and it takes over the computer screen. And it's unconscious. It's unconscious. Nobody invited it. And is it an attempt to gain something? No. It, well, it's an attempt to get the adult's attention. But isn't it also an attempt to meet a certain emotional need that wasn't met? when we were children? Sure. But it's the time zone's off. Mm. Because now it's the adult's turn. And the child's taking over. It happens in relationships all the time. Wow. If somebody was in an adult state, they would say to their partner, can we make an agreement that works for both of us? Why are agreements so important in relationships? Because it sets up a standard of how we're going to do things. Wow. Agreements sets up a standard for how we are going to do things. Yeah. So is that, do you need an agreement on everything? Uh, well, I don't know, but it, that would be impossible. Right. Right. <laughs> That's why science is important, because in science, there's this concept of critical mass and sufficiency. Not everything. So in relationships... What are some of the things with your clients that you have focused on the most in regards to agreements? Like what are the most important agreements that couples or families should agree upon? That we want to communicate in healthy, respectful, and sensitive ways to each other. And we're going to set aside and identify what's healthy and what's not ahead of time. And we agree that if anything's happening in the present, 
that doesn't feel good, we're going to stop and do a do-over or take a break so we don't create damage. I'm laughing because I have not seen a single movie where a couple is demonstrating that on the screen. We're not taught that. We're taught to yell through the movies we see because you can't write a story without conflict. So we need conflict, but we've been shown what conflict is supposed to look like, which is yelling and throwing plates against the wall and someone walking out of the door and with a dramatic leave. But, but that's not conflict. What is conflict? Conflict is when we disagree about whether to have pizza or Chinese food or whether the child should get three nights of no TV or no video games or one. That's a conflict. Why is spanking so bad for children? Why is abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse so bad for a child's brain? It violates their boundary. So if a child's brain is violated, what manifests from that? A lack of safety, a lot of anxiety, and if it happens a lot, low self-worth. So physical abuse, and again, I think that word abuse can be interpreted as many different ways because whatever was normal for someone growing up, they don't call it, they don't always call it abuse, right? They don't call it abuse, but it was still abuse. Okay, so yelling at a child being physically violent with a child, being sexually abusive with a child, can all of those things create a narcissistic defense? Sure. Often it's gonna create a lot of drug and alcohol use as a start, because there's so much pain, it needs to go somewhere. So if I am someone listening to this and I have I'm so proud of myself for how I've consciously chosen to change my sentences. <laughs> and I have chosen to, re I, I really want to change my narcissistic defense because I see how it's negatively impacting my relationship with my wife or my husband or my kid or my family member or even in my work. Mm -hmm. What do I do? You start by making a commitment to get humble because humility is a medicine. It's a transformative medicine. It's like a psychological antibiotic. And practically that would be doing what? That would be saying as an affirmation, I have a problem. I was out of control. I wasn't prepared. Which forms a bridge to, I need support. I need help. I need attention. So that the needs become just facts, like stitches, not something to be ashamed of. And how could the codependent support the narcissistic defended human? By asking questions and setting boundaries. And what would be a really constructive way to help validate the process? Um, do you know that I don't judge you for having needs for support? So good. That's why people go to AA or work the 12 steps. It's just just an affirmation of a need for support. But they don't have narcissistic 12-step meetings. They have them all the time. That's what they are. <laughs> that's really true. And if the, if the people at the meetings are working the steps and they're doing step six, without too much difficulty in digging, they're going to find this narcissistic part as one of the character defects. That's just standard. It's not that standard. I've done many 12-step work and no one talks like you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Okay, so it, again, Rachel, in terms of the languaging and the words. Yes. If somebody's in 12 steps, okay, and they get to, 12, and to get to step six, they don't have to call it a narcissistic part. They can just say it's the part that wants what it wants when it wants it. They would call it the selfish part. They could call it the selfish part. It, it's synon they're synonymous. Mm. Again, the culture has this thing for the word narcissism. It's a, way, it's a form of scapegoating. Yeah, it is. And a lot of people don't think that they're capable of changing. And I think that's sad. It's sad, and they're entitled to their opinion. And you're saying it is possible. Sure. That's exciting. Yeah. So we have a large portion of humans walking around out there that lead with their narcissistic 
defense. They do. And a lot of people who are attracted to them. They do. Like 30% of the population. Right. It's it's like it's how we're in this system. <laughs> so in order to create any change, we need boundaries. Boundaries and some consciousness around intention. Some consciousness around intention. And how could someone start exploring intention? They could consider what they're committed to. They could consider what they're committed to. They could consider it. Are they con are they committed to healthy communication? Are they committed to taking care of their bodies? Are they committed to parenting in a, an empowering way? What are they committed to? So that they're, they're not phobic about the word commitment. That's good. Yeah. Why would someone be? Why would someone have phobia around commitment? There's a lot of fear inside their body they haven't dealt with because they're ashamed of the fear and they're judging it narcissistically. Because <laughs> they think it's a weakness because if they're not all powerful, they're weak. And fear is certainly not all, all powerful. I love this way that you're talking about it, Bruce, because I have a lot of compassion for people who lead narcissistic, fuck it, who, who are narcissists. I'm just going to say it. I've had a lot of compassion for those people. And I feel like in our society, we villainize people and we create more shame with cancel culture and we don't create a space for those people to heal. That's the intentions off. The intention is to scapegoat. A lot of therapists won't even work with people who are viewed as malignant narcissists. That may be true. But you do. Sometimes, sometimes, but not always. Because why Why wouldn't you? Uh, they don't really want to change. Right. And I'm not in the business of selling them on it. Bruce, I... That was so good. I, I, I have so many more questions. I can't wait to have you back because I have so many more questions. And, and, I, and I, I, I really feel like in order for us to create change in our culture and our society, we have to lead with empathy and we have to lead with compassion. And I think it's good that we can all admit that we have narcissistic parts. Yeah, un until we deal with that nasty four-letter word that nobody really wants to talk about, we can't get there. Which one? Fear. Right. I mean, that's what the whole COVID thing was about, fear. And until the culture teaches people how to deal with fear, we can't really make progress. How would you teach people how to deal with fear? I would ask them about their relationship with it. Well, don't you think on a very core, unconscious level, our fear is about fear of death and fear of the unknown? That's just one of the fears in that pizza pie. Some people are just afraid about the future, and some people are afraid about failure, and some people are afraid of disappointment, and some people are afraid of saying no, and some people are afraid of uncertainty. And some people are afraid of making commitments. There's a lot of different fears. The question is, is the commitment to be a victim or not? No matter what. How would you define victim? not taking responsibility for choices. It's the basic principle in Buddhism that they've set the stage for understanding life. Someone gets hit by a car and there was a drunk driver that hit them. It's not their fault the drunk driver hit them. No. They're a victim of a drunk driver. So they could be a victim of what they do after, right? Yeah, what's by not doing anything. What's their choice? What are their choice? What do they need to accept? Because th that's part of living here on this planet is there are a lot of things to accept that are not easy to accept. This is a pretty primitive place. Wow, Bruce, you've got a brain. That's a big brain. That's a lot of valuable information, and I'm, I'm so grateful that all of the listeners were able to hear that today. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about you or be involved in anything you're doing in the future, how could people find out more information about you? They could check out some of my articles on the internet, which are pretty much up there for free. There's an article on narcissism that I put up there about 25 years ago. The impact of narcissism on leadership and sustainability comes right up. God, that's the next one. The next one is the impact of narcissism on leadership ability. That's no, next. On leadership and sustainability. On leadership and sustainability. That is the next one. Damn, that's good. 
Ugh, well, Bruce, thank you so, so much for your time, your energy, your brain, your intelligence, and uh, just a different way of looking at narcissism. And uh, I, I really value your the, the way you try to empower people and try to teach people how to take responsibility so that they're not victims. I mm -hmm. think that everyone needs to learn how to take responsibility and to not be a victim. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's how I've found freedom and liberation in my life and created change. And thank you for everything that you do. Thanks for having me. It was great to see you. It was so great to see you. And thank you for all of the listeners. Thank you for all of your feedback. Thank you for all of your comments on social media. We read and see everything. And just ask yourself today, what can I do to take responsibility in my life, in my choices? Do I know how to set a boundary? Do I know how to say no? What is my relationship to fear? So just consider these questions. Uh, write them down in some comment, whether it's on YouTube or Spotify or on Apple. And I can't wait to read them and, and respond myself. All right, guys, have a lovely week. Take care of yourself. Bye.